Let me ask you to turn to Colossians chapter 3 this morning. Colossians chapter 3. The measure of spirituality is not determined by our man-made extra-biblical rules. Whether a person eats meat or doesn't eat meat, whether you homeschool your kids or do not, whether you wear a dress or a suit to church or not, whether you own a TV or not, None of those things are a measure for spirituality in and of themselves. In fact, what Paul says at the end of chapter 2 is that we cannot curb fleshly indulgence simply by engaging in those things or not. So, if self-denial and earthly pleasures, uh, self-denial of earthly pleasures and man-made rules have no power over sinful compulsions, then what does? I mean, how can we have power over sinful pleasures? If it's not based on all these rules that, that, that we saw at the end of chapter 2, that the, the spiritual, supposedly spiritual leaders, the false teachers were giving to the church. You need to do this, 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 and this. If those don't work, and a lot of those included self-denial, then what does? And the answer comes at the beginning of this chapter, which we saw last week, and that is that we have to fix our eyes on the risen and exalted Christ. We have to fix our eyes on Christ. That's how we have power over sinful indulgence. And so how do we do that? How do we fix our eyes on Christ? Do we just kind of close our eyes and imagine where Christ is right now? And the way that we do that, the way that we fix our eyes, I finished last time by saying we need to make Christ's interests our interests. And so that means that we need to do what the rest of chapter 3 tells us to do. And here we're going to see that first we need to put off the deeds of the flesh. If we're going to make Christ's interest our interest, we need to put off the deeds of the flesh. And then next time we'll see we need to put on acts of righteousness. So, in short, if we're going to have victory over sin's pull on us, if we're going to have any power over sinful indulgence, then we need to be heavenly minded. And if we're going to be heavenly minded, that doesn't mean we need to be monks. Instead, we're called to get out into the battle and fight on the front lines of spiritual warfare against the deeds of the flesh. We need to engage in the battle. And that's what we're going to see today. That the life of a Christian is a battle against sin. Because when you were saved, you were united with Christ in His death and His resurrection and His future glory. And that union with Christ guarantees that we have died to sin. And that union with Christ guarantees that we have been made alive to righteousness. However, our allegiance to Christ is constantly being challenged by the powers of Satan, isn't it? Even though we are dead to sin and alive to righteousness, we still have this reality that sin exists and it actually often wins. It's as if we have been adopted into the family of the King And we have. And yet we're constantly being pulled back into our former way of life that rests on the laurels of our own worthiness. And what Paul's saying is that that kind of lifestyle is in direct opposition to the life of a king's son. So take off those kinds of activities. The the idea of putting off is, is almost like taking off a garment. Take off the soiled, dirty garments of that old way of life and put on the new garments 
of righteousness. That's what it looks like to be a king's son. Don't wall around in the filth. Put on clothing that's, that's worthy of being a king's son. So that means that we must engage in the battle against flesh, against the flesh and against the world and against Satan that are trying to disavow our relationship with God and to get us to live in opposition to who we are. Let me read our text for us. Follow along in your Bible, beginning in verse 5. This is the Word of God. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. But Christ is all and in all. As a new creation in Christ, we are individually being transformed and corporately being unified. As a new creation in Christ, we are individually being transformed. We'll see that in verses 5 through 10. And corporately, we are being unified. Verse 11. See, we have been united with Christ. We have been made into a new creation. And therefore, we must put off the sinful practices and abandon the traditional distinctions that separate us. That's what we'll see in verse 11. The nature of union with Christ is that it changes us. And it also brings us into unity. It changes us individually. It, it transforms us. So first, in verses 5-10, through 10, we see with the creation of a new man, we are transformed individually. We are transformed individually. And so that means that there are prohibitions regarding sinful practices. In verses 5 through 7, we see the first set of sinful practices. Deeds of the old nature. We need to put to death the deeds of the old nature. In verse 5, it begins with the word therefore. So if we're going to have any success against sin's compulsion, can't come through our own man-made extra-biblical rules. If we're going to have any success against sin's compulsion, we need to be heavenly-minded. Verses 1 through 4. Our heavenly-mindedness enables us to put to death the deeds of the old man. And, and what Paul is calling us to do is put to death these deeds of the old nature. Turn back to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, because I think it will be helpful, helpful for us to see how Paul explained it to the Roman church. We looked at this several months ago now, but, but it would be good to be reminded of this text. Romans chapter 6, verse 6. We'll start with verse 5. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be like Him in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, 
that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So here we have the same themes running through the text that we have in Colossians. That is that we have died with Christ. We are united with Christ in His death. And therefore, we need to put to death the deeds of the flesh. I love the way that Paul puts it here in verse 13. Don't go on presenting the members of your body as instruments of righteousness. God has changed you. So stop using your mind and your body parts to, to sin against God. Start using them for acts of righteousness. This is what's fundamentally changed when God saved you. He's given you a new disposition, a new ability you didn't have before. You could not please God apart from Jesus Christ. And so when you came to Christ, you were united with Him in His death and His resurrection. And so we ought to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Turn back to Colossians now. He's going to tell us the same idea that that we just saw in Romans 6, and that is, Verse 5, to consider the members of your earthly body as dead. And what we need to recognize here is that believers are dead to sin in one sense. Look up to verse 3. For you have died. How about chapter 2, verse 20? If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. And, and the idea if there is actually since. Since you have. And you have. You see, Jesus has done the work to destroy the opposing forces by virtue of His death on the cross. You have died to sin. We are dead to sin, and so because He has made us dead to sin, we need to put to death the deeds of the flesh. That's the command here in verse 5. Consider as dead. What ought we to consider dead? Look at the text. The members of your earthly body. So instead of saying put to death immorality, put to death impurity, put to death greed. He doesn't say that. He says put to death the members of your earthly body that are used for those things. So stop using the members of your earthly body for things that are opposed to God. Start using them for righteousness. So the command is essentially this. Consider dead what has already been destroyed. The old man is dead, and therefore put to death the old nature. We're going to get to the old man here. We come to um, verse 9. I'm going to talk about what that old man is. But, but what I want you to know right now is that the old man is dead. He perished when you came to Christ. But you still have an old nature. You still have a sinful nature. I still have a sinful nature. And we need to put to death those things that are consistent with a life of our old nature. 
Specifically in verse 5, we need to get rid of five passion sins that are part of our unbelieving past. First, we'll couple these into groups of two, immorality and impurity. Immorality and impurity, pretty self-explanatory, includes any form of sexual sin or thought that is in violation of God's design for how sex ought to be used. We need to put to death the members of our body that are, that are acting out in defiance against God in these ways. Secondly, second couplet is passion and evil desire. This goes deeper than the actions and the imaginations to the very motivations, the driving forces behind our sinful actions. Passion and evil desire. It's the driving force behind the sexual sin. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul said, this is the way that pagans live. He said, the will of God is for you to abstain from sexual immorality. That's God's will for your life. Don't behave like the, the pagans, the unbelievers who don't know God. They're constantly living in lustful passion. That's how we once were. That's what we were before we came to Christ. But you have been washed. You have been changed. The, the third set really is one, greed, which is idolatry. So immorality and impurity, passion and evil desire, and then this third one, greed, which is idolatry. It's actually the, the fifth one. And it seems to me that because the four previous sins all have to do with sexual sin, that this greed also has to do with sexual sin. You say, well, how, what does greed have to do with sexual sin? The word that's translated as greed can also be translated as covetousness. It is this lustful passion for what God has prohibited. It's, it's consistent with the Tenth Commandment. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. Do not be greedy for your neighbor's wife. That is to take her as your possession. That's the idea of greed here. And what does it amount to? Notice at the end of verse 5, which amounts to idolatry. The reason that we avoid this covetousness, this greed, is because it amounts to idolatry. We actually have dethroned God. We put our individual pleasure in His place. We say, God, I know what You've told me that You want me to do, but I'm going to take my pleasure and put it on the throne of my life. And my pleasure now has become my idol. That's idolatry. It's taking anything, anything, and putting it in the place of God where He belongs rightfully as first place as king in our lives. So why should we avoid these things? Why should we discipline ourselves in this way? Two answers in verse six, verses 6 and 7. The first motivation for avoiding sinful lusts is found in verse 6. That God will judge all who practice these things. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Those who live in lustful passion, those who are using the members of their earthly bodies for these kinds of sins, will be judged by God. That's why they're described as the sons of disobedience. The, the, the phrase sons of is just another way to say characterized by. Right, the, um, James and John, the sons of thunder, characterized by thunder. That's the idea of that, that phrase. And, and in this way, they are characterized by disobedience. 
people who are engaging in these things, who are practicing these things, will be judged by God. But here's why we avoid them. We are children of the King and we do not want to be judged by God. So we avoid those sins that He despises. second motivation is found in verse 7. These lusts no longer describe us. And so we shouldn't engage in them. Verse 7, And in them you also once walked, in these sins, these vices, when you were living in them. In other words, you've died to these sins. When you were dead in your trespasses and sins, then your physical life was a reflection of your spiritual deadness. And so you engaged in all sorts of immoral sins and impurity and, and, and uh, evil thoughts, desires, covetousness. Here's how Paul states it in 1 Corinthians 6.11 after describing a list of, of wicked sins. He says, Such were some of us, but we have been washed. We have been sanctified. There's a fundamental change that happens when we come to Christ, isn't there? No longer are we engaging in the sins that we once enjoyed that we once sought after, that we once lived for. So here's why we avoid them. First, God's told us to. Second, because He's going to be the judge of all those who practice these things. And third, because it's, it's what describes our former way of life. That's not who we are. Let's see if I can get this next one. Go back one. Oh, maybe it's down there, but it's can't see it. Sorry about that. Another formatting issue. The second one here in verse 8 is to put off the vices that turn us away from Christ. Put off the vices that turn us away from Christ in verse 8. Here, Paul gives five more sins that have to do with our social relationships. So first, these first ones are more passion immoral sins. These have to do more with our social relationships, how we deal with people, how we deal with problems. The first we'll take uh, together, the first two we'll take together, vices of rage. He says in verse 8, put now, uh, but now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. So first, anger and wrath. Anger is this uh, kind of like a slow burn. It's this chronic sinful anger. Now, anger in itself is not evil, but we often are sinfully angry. We're, we're angry for the wrong reasons. Wrath is this outburst. If, if anger is kind of the slow burn, wrath is an explosion. It's an outburst of, of, of anger, sinful anger. So vices of rage. And then secondly, vices of speech, malice, slander, and abusive speech. Malice as I mentioned before, is wishing bad things would happen to people. And then slander is actually causing bad things to happen through our how we misrepresent them. We're taking something that's happened or something they said and we misrepresent them in order to make them look worse than they actually are. And then abusive speech is, is just evil talk from our mouth. We're using it to tear people down, to abuse them. It is critical that we cut off these vices. Again, these, these describe our former way of life. And these vices have to do with our speech, but there's one that also has to do with our speech in verse 9 that has a category all its own. 
and it's lying. And so thirdly, we need to put off the lying that characterizes our former way of life. Put off the lying that characterizes our former way of life. Notice the text there in verse 9. Do not lie to one another. This verbal phrase, do not lie, is a progressive action. So it's the idea of stop lying. Stop continuing to lie to one another. That's the idea. As believers, our lives are now marked by speaking truth to one another. Notice the ground of the command here in the second part of verse 9. Why ought we to stop lying to, to one another? Because you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Here's why we speak truth to each other and not lie. Because we have been united, been united with Christ in His death, His burial, His resurrection. And in His death, We are united and now dead to sin and evil practices. And therefore, we must live in a way that's in keeping with our new self, with our new creation that's been given to us. Because in reality, when we came to Christ, the old man died. The old self is now dead. It's not something that we put to death. It's not something that we war against. We don't have an old man and a new man fighting against each other inside of us. The old man is dead. You see that in the text? Since you laid aside the old self, it's gone. It's dead. You can look at other passages like Romans 6.6 6 and Ephesians 4.22 to see the same idea. The reason we call him the old man is because the King James uses that, those terms, the old man. I think that's a good way to describe it. But in the New American Standards, it uses... New American Standard uses the old self. The idea is that when we were crucified with Christ, our old man was crucified with Christ. But that doesn't mean that we're free from sin. Here's how Dr. McCune explains it. He says, Sin no longer is an indwelling tyrant exercising its rights and controls. But rather, sin is now an expelled and illegal usurper with no rights at all. And although sin will not relinquish those rights easily, there certainly will be a struggle. You see, we are dead to our former master. We no longer have to obey our former ruler, sin. We are now dead to sin, dead to the old man. But sin is still like an evil usurper uh, trying to, to... to pull us back in. Trying to get us to say yes to it. So, all of these sins should not describe us. They should not be a part of our practices as believers. The basis for the commands to put off is found in verse 10. It is the basis is the heart transformation has taken place. And have put on the new self, or the new man, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. When the old man was alive in us, we lived according to the sinful nature. That's all we could do. But now the new man is alive in us, and we should not live according to the sinful nature. Instead, we should live in a way that's consistent with the work that God has done in us. We have been regenerated. We have been given new life. We've been made alive in Christ and so we need to stop returning to the graveyard 
and getting back and get on with living our lives among the living. What does that life look like? What does a life that is consistent with the new nature look like? Well, in verse 10 it tells us that we are being renewed to a true knowledge. That is, it's a life that's being sanctified, being changed, transformed. It's being metamorphosized. It's like a caterpillar to a butterfly. We are in the process of changing. That's what a new life looks like. And the way that we are renewed is, look at the end of the text, verse 10, according to the image of the one who created us. We are conformed. The way that we're conformed is to the image of Christ. This is not a magical process. It's not an automatic process. But it does happen, and it happens by the power of the Spirit. When we do the hard work of looking into the mirror of the perfect law of liberty and seeing what needs to be changed and then working by God's grace to change those things. We put off the deeds of the flesh. We remove these sinful vices. We stop lying. That's what change looks like. It means that we have a hatred, a holy hatred for sin now. We don't want to allow it to rule us. We turn away from it. We allow the Spirit to change us through His Word. So, in summary, what does a life that is consistent with the new nature look like? The answer is sanctification. A believer who has been the recipient of a fundamental change, regeneration, is one who is being changed. Sanctification. That's how we know who's in and who's out. That's how we know who the believers are. If they are being changed. If they are bearing the fruits of the Spirit. If they're putting off the deeds of the flesh in contrast to embracing them. The new nature that has been given to us at salvation not only transforms us individually, but finally in verse 11, it, it unifies us corporately. With the creation of the new man, we are unified corporately. So the traditional distinctions that, that separate us into groups, they're set aside because we are all unified in Christ. And so this renewal that's happening in us is not just individual. It's transforming me. It's also corporate, isn't it? It actually unifies us. As a church, we need to recognize that our unity is founded in Christ who is one. There's no disorder in Christ and there's no disorder in His church. There are no distinctions in His church. And so what that means is that there's no spiritual advantage from being a certain ethnicity. Notice the first sets of traditional distinctions that would separate us into groups. Verse 11, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew. So... Before, we, were kind of, we could go to opposite sides of the room. Are you a Jew or are you, are you a Greek? Now we're saying we all come together because ethnicity or nationality does not make a person more or less acceptable to God. There's no distinction. Second, there's no spiritual advantage from people who carry out religious rituals, circumcised or uncircumcised. There's no religious advantage to doing those sorts of things. Those rituals do not make a person acceptable before God or unacceptable. Thirdly, there's no spiritual advantage from cultural status. Here, instead of two opposites, we have two kinds of people in the same category. We're kind of expecting, well, the opposite of a Jew is a Greek. The opposite of circumcised is uncircumcised. So the opposite of barbarian 
is Scythian, but that's not actually the truth. Barbarian is an uncivilized person in the view of another. That's obvious. We, we might use that as a derogatory term for someone, a barbarian, uncivilized. But a Scythian is not the opposite of that. A Scythian is actually the worst type of that. The worst type of barbarian is a Scythian. And so what he's saying is that cultural distinctions do not make a person acceptable or unacceptable before God, no matter how barbaric they are. No matter how culturally uncivilized, right? Like a John the Baptist who comes in, in, um, in clothing that would not be acceptable in that day. The cultural distinctions do not make a person acceptable or unacceptable before God. And then, fourthly, no spiritual advantage from social status, slave or free man. So our social status, where we are in the pecking order of society does not make us acceptable or unacceptable before God. So when we come to Christ, it it breaks down all those walls, all those groupings, those barriers that separate us. Well, I'm not that, but I'm this. Until we kind of get into our own little group and, and, and what Christ has done in salvation is He's broken down all those traditional distinctions and He's unified us corporately. No matter what our background, no matter what we are now, socially or, or ethnically. And the reason that this is possible is twofold. You see that at the end of verse 11. First, that Christ is supreme. Christ is all. And secondly, because Christ indwells every believer. Christ is in all. And that means that there are there are no cultural elites that have more of Christ in them than another person who is maybe a peasant. Christ unifies believers. He he transforms them individually and He unifies them because He indwells them through the person of His Holy Spirit. So with the creation of the new man, we are changed individually and we are brought together unified corporately. So let me just leave you with one principle to consider point of application and that is to be who you are be who you are in other words live in a way that's keeping in keeping with your identity because Christ has conquered sin and death live as if that's true because it is Christ has conquered sin and death and so live that way be who you are in Christ And that requires work on your part. When God gave Joshua and Israel the land of promise, He brought about the victories of all the major cities. But by the end of the book of Joshua, Israel um, had occupied the strongholds of the land. But, if you know the rest of the story, you know that there were still Canaanites that lived among them, right? In fact, one... one, um, tribe came up to Joshua and said, hey, we don't have enough land to live here. Joshua said, you need to finish the job. You need to drive out the Canaanites. Their job was to remove all the Canaanites because God had conquered, conquered the battle, right? God had won that location, that land for them, but they still had work to do. They still had to remove the things that were were descriptive of the former way of life, right? The former way of life is that Canaanites occupied the land. God came in, took all the main cities and said, now finish the job. 
get out what doesn't belong here. And I think that serves as a good picture of what happened when God saved us. God conquered the, God conquered the battle. God won the victory for us. And He guaranteed final victory, full, um, full uh, reception of the land. But our job is, is to complicitly work with the Spirit to put to death the, deed, the, the pockets of resistance that remain. Right? God has conquered the strongholds. He's, he's guaranteed the final victory. But our job is to put to death those things that don't belong in our new way of life. We need to get them out. And we do this through the help of the Holy Spirit or by being complicit, following the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, being controlled by the Spirit as we'll see next week. You see, by virtue of our union with Christ, the old man is dead. And we have been given the power and the authority to put to death the old nature. To put to death the deeds of the flesh. To put to death the members of our body that were once used for instruments of unrighteousness. We have the power to do that through Christ. Christian, you have been brought to life from the dead, spiritually speaking. And you have been given the tools that are necessary to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And so those who set their affections on the risen and exalted Christ, those who are heavenly minded, will continually work at eliminating sin from their lives with the help of the Spirit. You have died to sin. So be who you are. Live in such a way that is in keeping with that reality. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the guarantee of salvation. Thankful for the work of Your Holy Spirit in our lives. We were drowning in in our own sins. Lord, we were underneath Your wrath and deserving of Your final judgment. But that's when You rescued us. You sent Jesus to die for our sins. And You sent someone our way to tell us the great news of the Gospel. Lord, because of our union with Christ in salvation, not only are we freed from Your eternal wrath, but we're also freed from the power of sin. It no longer has a grip on us like it once did. Our old man is dead. And yet there's still this pull in us. There's still this fight, this battle. The battle over our soul. And Lord, we, we often give in to the deeds of the flesh. We often give in to our old nature, our sin nature. And we need Your Spirit to continually work in us to change us. And Lord, we need to be complicit with Him. We are often prompted by Him through Your Word to change. And we turn our own way. We turn away from You. Lord, help us to be more consistent with, with being heavenly minded and putting off the sins of the flesh. Lord, these things only destroy and make life worse for us. And so, Lord, pull us away from those things. Help us to see the real joy of serving Christ and and giving our lives fully to Him. Thank You for the guaranteed victory that is here. Help us to remove the pockets of resistance that still remain. The help of Your Spirit, in Jesus' name, Amen.